Hello, everyone. This is Gary Bean welcoming you to the LL Research Law of One podcast, episode number 95. LL Research is a nonprofit dedicated to freely sharing spiritually oriented information and fostering community. And towards this end, it has two websites the archive website, llresearch.org, and the community website, bringforth.org. Today, I am joined not only by the usual Jim McCarty and Austin Bridges, but a guest we are very honored to have on, Shruti Bajaj. In this podcast, we discuss spiritual topics through the lens of the law of one and our own personal experiences. We hope to only offer a resource and provide discussion, not to present ourselves as authorities with the final word on these subjects. Please exercise your utmost discernment while you listen to us carry and ramble on. Many of the topics we discuss on this podcast come from questions sent in by seekers. If you have a question or a topic you'd like for us to discuss, please send it in. You can email them to us at contact at llresearch.org or go to llresearch.org slash podcast for further instructions. Again, I'm Gary Beam, and this is the LL Research Law of One podcast. Uh, Austin, Jim, Shruti, are you guys ready to go? Ready. I'm ready. All right. On the occasion we've had a guest on, we've been um, asked by listeners to introduce who it is we're we're, um, speaking with on the program. So I'm going to give you a quick uh, few bio points about our guest, Shruti. Uh, Shruti is a shamanic healer and a teacher who offers medicine and healing that, as her website describes, is centered uh, in her deep prayerful communications with the unseen and natural worlds. She also shares her ancestral wisdom of Ayurveda, healing, food, and yoga, and applies some of her many skills to create beautiful online courses and meditations. Shruti is of South Asian descent and was raised between New Delhi, India, and Los Angeles, California. She currently resides near Denver, Colorado with her fiance, John, and his son, Mark. So to give you a quick snapshot of um, how Shruti came to be on the podcast, she uh, reached out to us and said, and I quote, this is the greatest podcast ever created. And I am surprised that mere mortals could produce such perfection. Mm-hmm. Uh, actually, she did say that she enjoyed the podcast and she sent in a really central question that um, seems would have universal applicability to um most spiritual seekers in this world. So we got together and thought, well, what if we have the truthy on to ask the question and we collectively explore it? So you are going to embark on an experiment with all four of us. Um, none of us have really met before this moment outside of a, a few emails exchanged um, back and forth. So I hope also you will offer some space, offer us some space as we explore this new format, if there's um, any any fumbling or um, directions that don't pan out, uh, we are a combination of nervous and excited. And uh, hopefully there'll be some grace for all four of us to do something we haven't done before. So let's start exploring that question. Uh, Shruti, would you like to uh, share the question that has been on your mind for some time? Yes. Um, I will share my question. I also just wanted to first thank you all for having me here and 
at the point I had emailed you, Gary, or all of you, um, and the words you had spoken kind of were a, a net for me. Like, I felt like I was actually drowning with this question. Mm. Um, and on my trips, my soul seeking trips, you have all of your voice and wisdom have been so helpful. So are they are amazing podcasts, I have to say. <laughs> um, and the question that I have is, I feel a constant conflict between my life of spirit and my life as a householder. My spirit path thrives in freedom and space with extended time in the natural world, which is my ultimate home. Though I do have a wonderful relationship with my partner and a growing relationship with his teenage son, my householder suburb life itself is draining with the excess of technology, consumerism, and disconnect from nature. I often feel isolated and depressed in this environment and resent the chains and people that seem to bind me. Part of me wonders why I haven't chosen a solo path to live off the grid and fully immersed in a life of service. Though I suppose that really isn't possible even if my mind, I romanticize it. This is a source of my inner conflict. From some of your teachings, I understand catalysts are a potent source of spiritual growth. I do wonder why my incarnation has to focus so much on navigating human life when I get along so much better with non-humans as they appear to understand and can unconditionally love me in a way that is truth. Thank you so much. I think the listeners can understand why I would say that it has universal applicability. So in looking for a starting point for us to begin exploring this question, I'm hearing of the conflict and the tension within you that um, between your present circumstances and where your heart really feels at home. So I'm wondering if we could expand into some biographical exploration from the perspective of the spiritual journey, as that seems most relevant to your question and your challenge. And um, hopefully that will give all four of us enough terrain to navigate. So Shruti, would you be able to share some of the key highlights of your spiritual journey? Um, I watched the excellent Mother Earth meal prayers on your website, and it <laughs> seems that spirituality was really a part of your upbringing. Uh-huh. Yeah. Um, it wasn't, it wasn't. So I was feeling into this the past couple of days and how to present it. And um, I sort of kind of sketched out the point where I started in earnest my own spiritual journey and not that of my family and ancestors. So I can walk us through that, if that'd be helpful. Yeah, yeah, absolutely, please. Okay, so I'd say it started, this was in um, early 2000, before 9-11, and what was happening was that I was experiencing this really deep conflict. Um, I think probably my first real conflict um, between really wanting to live this life of freedom and then living according to the rules of my family and society and when I say society, I mean more the my Indian culture that I was kind of heavily raised in. And, you know, I was, I was supposed to, you know, marry an Indian man, um, be, uh, get many degrees, 
have a really good job, um, have lots of kids, and then have a life and, you know, like a really stable life and lots of socializing. And so I, um, I tried that life on, I thought, okay, well, why not? I was doing everything else that was expected of me as may as well just go the full length. And that resulted in um, a disease that started in my early thirties and kind of stayed with me through my entire thirties actually until I was about 39. And so it was a call to action, although it was pretty slow to heed it because I fought it with medical advice and went to all these doctors and thought I would just handle it there, but it was a spiritual, it had spiritual origins. Mm. Um, and so by chance, I fell into teacher training as, you know, as most, I guess, things on the path, uh, when they are by chance, they have the most, I'd say, meaning and the teacher training just it blew me away. I mean, it was a simple teacher training here in Denver, Colorado. I had just moved here. Um, and But the people I met, and they were speaking this language I could understand. And um, they were devoted to something outside of themselves, outside of their families, outside of culture, outside of tradition. And um, so it was my, probably one of my first life-changing events that happened. So from that, and I call that the awakening to the path. So that point was a teacher training. And so the next part of that journey was then um, to follow this new kind of, uh, I'd say maybe calling is appropriate to say, um, I had to then cut lots of cords to my current circumstances. And so you know, that was a divorce and then selling a lot of my belongings, becoming very free, you know, changing all my friendships. So having some really hard discussions with my family. So that became, you know, that was a thing. Like that didn't just happen for a month. It happened for years, mm-hmm. probably still happening in some ways. Um, and then, so I, then what I called the next step was life of the soul. And this was something I hadn't experienced before. I'd only lived the life I was supposed to live. And so it was this open canvas and it was so exciting. And I was just like rushing to do it. (laughs) So, you know, it wasn't the most graceful entry into that. (laughs) Um, But that life of the soul, what it looked like at that point was that, I first, you know, gave up everything except my car, which I loved, a Mini Cooper. And I took a journey to Southeast Asia, actually a couple, but they were about for a year, um, over a two-year period. And then um, there I just studied yoga and meditation and got to know my, my land roots in India, but from a different perspective. So I spent less time with family and more with um, the spiritual aspects. And then I came back um, and I decided to pursue my love of cooking and Ayurveda and just kind of toured over in monasteries and lived in um, retreat centers and just kind of did a lot of really fun stuff and um, cooked a lot. Um, And then my last kind of piece of that before the second conflict happened was I moved to Sedona and I was an Ayurvedic chef there and it was, I, I hiked on the land every day. I had this new relationship 
with a natural world I hadn't experienced, but was part of me from, from when I was a child, but was sort of being expressed very fully. And it was an amazing position, an amazing life. And then just something started falling apart. And when I look back at it, it was doubt. A doubt had crept in and taken its very large form. And it was doubt from inside of me as well as doubt of my family saying, you're never going to make it. What are you doing with your life? You know, I was told I was becoming this eccentric person and I believed it. Um, and so I left all that and um, made a disharmonious choice, I call it, and um, kind of moved away from my spiritual path for a while. Um, so that's my first segment of how I came upon it. I don't know if I should go into more if I already have talked a lot, but that was kind of how it came into being initially. When you say, first let me say, wow, <laughs> I, um, we are all, didn't know really much of anything about your life path. And there is so much richness here. There's um, multiple directions that could be explored. So that reflection made when you say it, uh, what do you mean by it? Is it the, the crux that you're negotiating right now, this challenge? No, it was a, um, no. The well, the second conflict was really coming back and taking another corporate job because I was so worried about money and I had a second disease um, and had to go this whole cycle again, basically. Um, so now I'm, I am more in life of the soul second time around, but this conflict um, is more of an inquiry that I think is gonna support my spirit path and take me away from it, if that makes sense. Yes. So at the point that you made what you call a disharmonious choice and you left what had been a fruitful, joyful chapter in your life in Sedona, you took a, um, you know, you, the voices of doubt, the voices of survival and the world and the expectations of uh, family led you to make that choice, which involved um, taking on a corporate job. And then, uh, like you said, you revisited that initial catalyst and a new cycle of disease uh, emerged. Is that correct? Yeah. And then could you connect, take us from there up to the present? Yeah. Yeah. So that second disease was... Um, only lasted five years this time. So it was maybe a little better. I, I, I exited more quickly from that which was not serving the spirit path anymore. Um, and the awakening in this case, which was also just came out of the blue, essentially was to study shamanism and um, also journey to Brazil for my first time to be with some soul sisters from a past lifetime. And so I kind of took both of those on simultaneously. And, um, and so as those unfolded, and again, a new community of just like a whole different language, not only with humans now, but with the natural world that I again had grown up knowing that I, I wanted to do that more 
in a structured way. And now it was being shown. It's what people do. And it was, I mean, my world is just kind of blowing open essentially. Um, and so that awakening to path again was a shamanism and then cutting cords to circumstances again. And that was my job, but also on a deeper level was to money and how to live in freedom without this. And this is a constant work in progress, but really to um, be okay on this eccentric spirit path. Um, more conversations with family. And then I met my partner um, in all of this who is wonderful and gets it and constantly asks questions about the things he may not understand. And so with him, he's actually part of my life of the soul now, what I call it. And then if doubt is a thing that takes me away, has taken me away from spirit paths, support is what has kept me on it. And he is part of that support network now, um, as well as my other communities. And I'd say as well as you all, because I mean, your podcasts come at such amazing timing. It's um, like I was driving towards Crestone this last week and you're all talking about solitude and I was going towards solitude, you know, and so I was like, okay, so this is a very universal concept. Um, so again, the support of my partners, the support of my spirit communities is leading towards this growth and deepening. And so this current conflict I'm having, again, is more of the inquiry that takes me into this life of the soul than what I believe will take me out of it. Does that make sense? This inquiry that you have right now, you believe will take you deeper into the life of the soul versus out of it. Yeah. So the, are you saying the question that you came to the podcast with is you're asking yourself this question in order to find ways to deepen your path and to experience greater authenticity and greater freedom? Yes. Yeah. Yeah, that does make sense. And just from this really eloquent, concisely captured look at a long and rich and uh, varied journey, some central themes begin to emerge in your telling. Um, and they seemed, I'm, if I can just offer my reflection of what I am hearing and how it's landing with me, <laughs> and see if you would say the same. It, it seems that um, among the central themes, there is a, a thread of finding the courage to be who you truly are through the process of discovery of who you truly are. And the courage also to follow your lights, regardless of what, quote unquote, the world may reflect back to you. Yep, that's pretty much it. <laughs> um, and I think I can laugh now, but it's it's just been really hard. I mean, the familial and cultural, cultural pressures, they are just so many lifetimes into this one. Um, so even to be at this point, I, I feel much gratitude for. I sense there is so much self-awareness with the way you are approaching it. And by self-awareness, I don't mean that like you've got this all figured out and you have the overview and you know the answers. 
but rather there's a great intentionality I feel to the way that you address this question and bring it up in yourself and turn it over in your mind, um, despite the difficulties that it causes, you know, you're not just at the mercy of forces of the world tossing you this way and that, like you are making conscious choices at every step. And this particular question is one that we at LL Research, who are receiving um, communication from seekers from all over the world, are is rather a question that we see, like, how do I fully embody my spirituality and the service I want to offer and develop my own gifts when like the economy doesn't support it or it seems unrealistic or foolhardy? How do I balance these two things? And we have, um, this brings to mind, we have a dear friend in Vermont who is a beautiful uh, open-hearted woman and had discovered this profound capacity to channel bliss, blissful, orgasmic energy through her and created a podcast and began exploring that, but came up to the same or similar sort of crux that you're describing. And I won't go on too long about this, but just to kind of help clarify that it's such a common issue I think so she came up to this crux where it was a choice between pursuing this which is so core to her and calls her so strongly versus um, you know being quote-unquote realistic and uh, doing what the real world expects and becoming an attorney and it was such a uh, a source of struggle in her and she had for reasons that were um, relevant to her had to choose kind of uh, like I felt like you did after Sedona had to choose the, the corporate path and she which literally required her shutting down her podcast because these uh, her partners in the law firm uh, were not didn't feel that would be appropriate for an attorney and it's it's she works so hard and passed the bar and um and now a year later she's facing that same question again so but we're here to explore this in your life path where do we go from know, here though. Mm -hmm. um gary i guess or all of you i when i was thinking about what makes this inquiry an inquiry <laughs> like what is it about this conflict can I share that a bit more mm -hmm, please so like I, I again I feel like I've come really far and I'm not in that space where it's daily angst but I still feel that I have to fit some rules of society so went from having to, you know, fit the rules of my family society to now having to fit the rules of my partner's family society, and um, and the thing that's probably most at odds right now is I have this just primal need to wander <laughs> and to seek through journeying, physical journeying. I also, you know, do semantic journey but like physically move in the world and this need to wander is just really in direct conflict with my suburb life and 
if it's not, it's not daily angst, but it does really just, you know, I get pretty down about it. Um, and I feel stifled. So that's something I would love to explore more of as to the piece of my current conflict. That's probably the, one of the bigger pieces of it. But could you narrow down what it is about that you would like to explore? Is it how do I reconcile these two seemingly opposing desires? How do I situate these in my being? How do I make peace with this? Um, yeah, I, I don't know about peace because it feels a little passive. I mean, I would like, to, I'd like to like live all aspects of my life. You know, mm. I'd love to, <laughs> I'd love to go to wander, like get up and go for a month with no questions asked. Again, I'm saying this knowing that there's always restrictions and I would love to be with my family. Um, I don't want to have to please people anymore as much. I think that I'd like to let go of or to feel constrictions because of what people are saying about me. So maybe just, you know, yeah, how to hold both <laughs> would be one of my questions, um, <laughs> if that's possible. I have some, a few thoughts to maybe help you and us to consider this question. So could you describe like what it is about your pre present circumstances that create this resistance in you and how that resistance feels? Mm -hmm. Yeah, just take some notes on that. Um, well, so in my thirties, when I was, I had this disease, I was unable to have my own children. And I took that as a sign from the universe that that's how my life is supposed to be. And I embraced it. And then I meet my beloved and he has a son. And um, so I came in, in my mid forties to a role as a stepmother which I just didn't know I would um, be having this lifetime given what happened. So there's a bit of this feeling that my wandering life is in conflict with the need to step, be a step parent. Um, and so how that makes me feel is a little ashamed that I have a desire to have to leave my family. I feel guilty, I feel rather embarrassed, and I, I hide this a lot from people, like that um, I'm essentially a nomad, and here I'm supposed to not be anymore. So I'd say my current circumstance of being a step-parent is in direct conflict with my sole desire to wander. Does that answer your question? Yeah, and I could see how that would create friction when you you have this desire to wander and you look at all that's available on this planet to go see and do and experience and the deeper communions that are available and then the alarm clock, uh, the phone alarm clock goes off in the morning and you have to make breakfast and do uh, whatever the other household chores are and and have these responsibilities that tie you down to one place. Mm -hmm. 
Hmm. Um, this is also, I think, a rich case in point for exploring pre-incarnational choices versus our incarnational desires. Do you have any sense that you may have what you're experiencing now may be an outgrowth or a function of certain choices that were made prior to the incarnation to elicit learning? Like, do you see that this difficult, though this catalyst is, offers some learning that you might not otherwise be able to experience? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. I was also kind of reflecting on this to give some lessons that being in this role has, um, which is me why I feel guilty for just not fully embracing it more because it, it's lovely in its own right, <laughs> you know? Um, but in terms of the pre-incarnational and incarnational that's something I'd love to hear you all talk about more because I grew up with the Hindu version of it, but I don't feel satisfied by that at all. Um, so that's, yeah, that's, that's a place where I feel very gray, grayish. <laughs> Need some guidance perhaps. Or... I've got some good thoughts to offer on that, but I'm gonna table that for a moment and say, um, firstly, if I can offer a reflection about the guilt and shame that arises when you feel this impulse to wander and to embody your full nomad self, that um, a key component of the law of one for those upon the positive path is a total, even radical acceptance of one's own experience. Uh, Ra and other confederation sources counsel that progress and soul development and the deepening of authenticity that you're seeking happens by increasingly releasing the the judgment and blame that we hold for ourselves forgiving ourselves for for who and what we are and accepting what arises so these these impulses within you can understand how they would lead to a mental dialogue of I should be grateful for what I have and what I have is beautiful. And why would I want to um, step away from this in any capacity? But it is part of yourself is speaking and to fully be heard. Um, the law of one philosophy counsels um, acceptance. And it's through that, that mechanism of bringing these concerns into the heart that they, they find their true home and there's greater integration of the self and less, less um, conflict. But I've been talking a lot. How about, uh, uh, Jim, do you have thoughts to offer about this dynamic between pre-incarnational and incarnational will or between the tension of desiring something beyond one's present circumstances? Well, from my understandings uh, from both Ra and um, people who have, as you know, with Dr. Michael Newton gotten into mm -hmm. pre-incarnational choices, what seems to be a general case is that we frequently program into the life experience to come 
lessons that will be some difficulty in achieving so that it will take more effort on our part in order to do it. If it was a simple effort, there wouldn't be as much reward. So when we find ourselves in a situation like this, or any kind of conflict between what we want and what we have, then it seems like we benefit from trying to do what feels the best, feels right. We go to our hearts. Uh, our minds are good for analyzing a situation, but not so good for making the choice. Really what seems to work best is find what is in your heart and then moving forward as best you can, realizing that this may require an extended effort as I think you already know and the, the, the price is something that will take some time to pay. And it isn't necessarily the case that you get a final resolution so that you are free and clear of the conflict. It sometimes is the case that your willingness to have faith that even the juggling of two seeming opposing possibilities is worthwhile. You are attempting to bring spirituality, shall I say, to everyone around you as you yourself attempt to realize in your life more or less successfully in your own estimation. One thing that Carla would always say that I think pertains at all times to all people is that you cannot take your own spiritual temperature. You don't really know what you're doing is either spiritual or not spiritual. Something that may not be spiritual, making the breakfast in the morning, you know, you know, using the alarm clock and so forth, may not seem spiritual. And yet, if you do it with love, and compassion for everyone around you, your, your mate and your stepson and your family and neighbors and other people who have opinions about you. If you attempt to come from your heart at all times in explaining when you feel necessary or asked what it is you're doing and why you're doing it, then you may be on a spiritual journey that is even more powerful than the one you think you want to be on. Mm -hmm. Ooh, you slowed Jim down. In Jim's flow, thank you, Jim. Um, Sruti, having listened to our podcast, you're familiar with our, the way we, in a very sequential sort of fashion, say, okay, Jim, what are your thoughts? Okay, Austin. So I'm going to continue that format and uh, ask Austin what he thinks on these questions. <laughs> Glad you asked, Gary. <laughs> um, I'm feeling a little inadequate to address like the direct kind of practical issue because 
you know, the three of us, uh, me, you, Gary, and Jim, are very lucky in our lives and what we get to experience. We're so blessed to be able to not really have to ask this question of ourselves, um, particularly more what you were talking about with readers who write in and they're trying to reconcile their desire to live their spiritual life and it's not merging with their practical life. And it seems like for us that has, uh, that tension is very minimal. So I am very blessed to be in that position. So what I'm uh, feeling sort of more called to think about in the dynamic that Shruti is talking about is sort of the intrinsic value of that tension in and of itself. Like it's something I've really been considering and thinking about on my own spiritual path and that the law of one, one of the most useful perspectives and teachings that it has given to me is this idea that our experiences are valuable for their value on our spiritual path. They help us to progress along our spiritual path. But lately I've sort of been pulling back from that specific perspective and that trying not to place my experiences in a context that they're valuable because they are helpful for a certain type of progression, but that there is just an intrinsic value beyond any concept, beyond any sort of context that I want to put it in, that uh, the experiences are valuable. And I think Jim started saying something about this a little bit in the idea of faith. And he said that even maybe even juggling the dynamic of this tension, maybe trying to find this balance and just the, um, the tension that is felt when trying to figure out why you're here, that feeling in itself um, beyond any other concept is valuable to the creator, to uh, our life for some reason, just allowing it and accepting it and um, having it be our in the moment we're feeling it, the definition of our being, I think that there is value in that. Um, but that's really all I'm feeling called to say. It's hard to, for me to talk about any sort of practical way to handle the tension or direction to go in life or things like that. I'm just feeling called to honor the, the feelings for what they're worth. So our conclusion is the tension is good <laughs> for your growth. Uh, I'm going to build a little bit off of what Austin was saying and Jim as well uh, about like the value of the tension alone. And in 65.7, Ra is describing a potential future scenario on our planet whereby two forms of government say uh, could be in conflict with one another and they indicated that this scenario would quote stimulate great quantities of contemplation upon the great polarization implicit in the contrast between freedom and control and they go on to say um, people in this experiencing this scenario lacking the opportunity for overt expression of the love of freedom the seeking for inner knowledge would then take root in them and then they these um then people would essentially be stimulated into spiritual seeking 
so it's kind of just kind of a, another angle to highlight the way that the tension is productive in and of itself, because without it, you may not be asking the questions that you're asking, or you may not be refining your will and faith in, in, um, with, without those, that um, situation in your being. I hope I'm making sense. But um, thank you for thank you for inviting this feedback too, because I was a bit concerned that you know you would ask the question, and then we would just appear like you know we're three people who have answers for you. Um, so <laughs> it's I, I hope that um, we your your own question and your own biography become a platform for these uh, consideration of really universal spiritual principles but um so how are things landing with you so far we're we're thinking oh this is so helpful i mean these perspectives i, I like them things are sort of taken apart and <clears throat> away from the question itself and more of the feelings and the faith and the tension and the value and gary what you're reflecting on um I guess one question I do have from the view of law of one is what, what is, maybe it's, I don't know how different words are used, but this concept of surrender and effort, I say, like, what, yeah, what do we surrender to and what do we try and shift in the world around us or in our circumstances to be of service, you know, to be of service to others? Does that make sense, that question? Mm -hmm. the, yeah, the, the dynamic balance between will and faith, uh, effort and grace, mm -hmm. uh, <clears throat> intention and surrender and trust and acceptance. Jim, did you want to um, explore that? Uh, sure, I'd give it a shot. Um, I think that what I usually surrender to and would recommend that other people consider is that whether you would call it uh, the message from the heart or your intuition, that comes from deep inside of you that once you have thought so much about any particular issue, the conflict that exists and what to do, that's the role of the mind is to give you all the facts. And then meditate on it, go into meditations and think as you begin, what does my heart say? And sometimes you'll be surprised at how quickly the answer will come, or sometimes it may take longer. But I think one of the things that, there's little axioms that Ra has, and I, I think it's good to remember some of them. And one of them is there are no mistakes that whatever you do can teach you more of what you want to know, even if it seems like you fell down and missed the boat. Uh, that could be a necessary part of learning what you need to learn. And the other axiom that I always recommend is uh, all is well, all is one. You're there, you're doing your best, you're giving it all you've got, you're asking honest questions, you're willing to, to take other points of view into consideration. So do that, meditate, listen to your heart. That would be my thought. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I see surrender 
similarly, I think key to me when contemplating surrender. And by the way, I think the law of one text specifically, Rod doesn't use the word surrender, but it is replete throughout the material when um, you dig into it. And I, key to me in understanding surrender and the balance between will and faith is, is non-attachment to outcome. I think that um, our whole journey unfolds as a function of our will on various levels, our incarnational will, our pre-incarnational will, the will of the logos, and ultimately the will of the one. But there is in spiritual literature, the consummate use of will, which is this surrender to the divine or surrender to the one. And um, I think non-attachment to outcome is one angle to view that because it suggests that we do exercise our will and point it in the direction of our seeking and refine it and understand what it is we really want in our hearts of hearts more deeply and, and to give our best, but in the end, realize that we don't ultimately have control over the outcome. So instead we release like, you know, the, the idiom goes, let the cards fall where they may. And that's a way that we express trust in the divine intelligence of the universe. Like whatever it is that arises in this moment, I will work to accept it as it is. I will work to release judgment and resistance. But to me, like that also doesn't mean we become just these passive, like a piece of driftwood being moved along in the ocean. We are also setting our course and steering our rudder to um, more perfectly align with who we are and what it is we're seeking. So it's, it's a very deep and personal and intimate contemplation to consider these dynamics. And I think part of that non-attachment to outcome is trusting, as Jim said, that all is as well. Like really, if one activates and embodies faith, I think that the state of being faithful and experiencing faith can be best encapsulated in those words. There is a trust that whatever the surface appearance is, even if the world is blowing itself up and on fire, all is ultimately well because this is the creator knowing it itself. And like Jim said, according to the law of one and really other mystical teachings, there are no mistakes. So even if um, suffering is caused and harm is caused, like we ought to, from a place of compassion, work to heal that suffering, but there are no mistakes. All steps will eventually lead to the creator. And that, that kind of expands into the abstract and a bit outside of what seems grounded in your specific life circumstances. But like the law of one does trade in these universal principles that then are applied to uh, individuals using their catalyst. But I'll kick it back over to Austin. Yeah, actually, as you, when you just said that, I was thinking about 
the thoughts going through my head and then how they're not very specific to what Shruti is asking about. We're, we are really pulling back pretty far and how we're thinking about this. Um, but I will share the thoughts that went through my head anyways. Uh, I see the idea of surrender is sort of a different facet to the same concept of acceptance that Ra talks about. And very similarly to how Gary was mentioning acceptance earlier. And essentially, the way that I understand it is um, in your initial question, Shruti, you talked about the fact that this was catalyst and Ra talks about how the key to catalyst for positive individuals is acceptance and the key to for negative individuals is control. And to me, it seems like, you know, the opposite of control could be either both acceptance or surrender. So I think they're very similar ideas. And my understanding of this process is that as we experience catalyst, as we experience this tension, it's sort of calling us to um, the process for positive individuals is a process of acceptance and surrender for that catalyst. But I don't think that necessarily once we surrender, once we accept that catalyst and once we process it and it helps to balance our energy centers, I don't necessarily think it means a um, passivity. I think it is um, us more allowing the flow of the universe to work through us. Um, there is a, a passage in the law of one where uh, Ra and Don are talking about the balancing of energy centers, which I think is just another way to talk about processing the catalyst that we experience in our lives. And Don makes a reference to how it might be similar to tuning an instrument, a seven string instrument. And Ra says that uh, it's correct. And in the balanced individual, the energies lie waiting for the hand of the creator to pluck harmony. And so in terms of surrender, I think what surrendering is, is allowing yourself to be ready in a state of allowing the creator to pluck harmony essentially at any moment. And uh, sometimes it, the creator moving through us might look like great effort, I think. I think um, we could be perfectly balanced individuals doing a lot on the outside, but internally we're still sort of in a state of surrender. Thanks, Austin. I think a quick point, I'm going to turn it back to you, Sruti. I, when one is faithful, I think one thing that happens is we align ourselves with the highest destiny. Or another way to say that, like we create the most interior space for, for our truth to arise or for the next step in our journey to be made more clear to us um, with a smoother cooperation with destiny one might say but um i have other questions and th thoughts but i want to ask uh, shruti is if there's anything you want to ref uh, bounce back with or explore or ask yeah this i'm just feeling really actually deeply touched right now by your responses and how they're making me feel is um very soothed soothed uh calmed in lots of ways by some of the nervous energy or frenzy about my question. So that's one reflection. So thank you for that. Um, it, it, 
Austin, I really like what you said about this catalyst positive and negative because one of my questions was, or reflections on um, destiny, which is kismet in Sanskrit, is this belief that you do, that we already have our, our life laid out for us. We just have to live it in the right way. And what I was taught growing up from my mom was that you give up everything for God and the rest will be taken care of. And when I have practiced that in earnest, it has really shown itself to be true. Um, and the thing that was confusing about this message growing up was on the other side, there was this kind of push, 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 like go to the best schools, get straight A's, you know, like make your life happen. But that, that was control essentially. So kind of breaking it down into like acceptance versus control really that's really cool. And that kind of helps to balance some of that. Um, and one more thought I was going to share about what you were saying is when I was thinking about the gifts that my current life has and lessons, I would say that um, it has been a real opening to love that I have not experienced in my life until until I became a stepmother, actually, um, the unconditional part of the love didn't really make sense to me until I had to apply it to, to, um, to a child or mm. a younger, a younger being in my life who needed me in a different way than adults have needed me. So, um, this acceptance linked to love, linked to faith. I mean, it's all really again feeling really good inside of me. So, that's my reflection. So we took a quick break and now we're back. And uh, Shruti, you were describing how this, um, how your, your current life configuration isn't without gift. And uh, among them, at least those that can be, one that can be identified now is the relationship with your uh, stepson being a means of opening your heart more in terms of helping you to understand unconditional love. Can you explain or elaborate further on like how the relationship engenders that and why if you were the, the nomad that part of yourself calls you to be, you, you might not be contemplating unconditional love as deeply or in, in, in as personally. Good question. This is probably a good example actually of the surrender piece because I was fighting, <clears throat> I was fighting my role. I was in denial of it. I was offloading it. And then I was away actually in California for a couple of weeks and really just mulling all this over, talking to the trees, like um, becoming still and realized I just had to make, a, a I had to go with my heart decision, which was just to love and to love in a way that I haven't experienced before in the giving of it, because I've been loved in that way as a child myself, but in the carrying that forward and giving um, and I would have these sessions where I would practice seeing him as light, just pure light, 
the light that we all are and I, I would the light would grow and grow around him so it would no longer see the things about him that were challenging you know the teenage aspects of anybody and it would just blind me like this his light and I was you know would continue to try and see him this way then I came back home and there he was in light <laughs> and it was just this kind of magical experience that yeah, there's still challenges, of course. And now there's just a lot more laughter and mm. joy. And um, he will say things to me that are very, actually very kind. And um, it is a daily practice of remembering that. So yeah, if I hadn't um, encountered this type of family life, this, you know, sort of um, kind of patched together family that we are feeling is really <clears throat> how do I say it yeah I'd say there's some magic to it now that I reflect on it in this way that this opening of love and opening of my heart is through is through my householder life oh that's really beautiful and it reminds me that the relationships we have in life particularly the significant ones generate catalysts for us and from a non-spiritual perspective that catalyst might seem unfortunate or unhelpful um like this i feel grief or pain or resistance about this person but from a spiritual perspective particularly particularly from the law of one which describes all life moments all life experiences catalyst we can then relate to that resistance as some something that's communicating to us um something that can be used for our growth and it sounds like that's exactly what you've done you you took that resistance and um you took it into inquiry and into meditation and let it reveal to you where you might be experiencing some kind of limitation to love or communion or service to another. And without the challenge of that resistance, then, you know, you, you might not have been led into that inquiry. Um, yeah. So then the life as you live, it becomes this, this gift. And I want to dive into pre-incarnational choices and how they help elicit these lessons. But um, Jim or Austin, would you guys have any reflection to offer? You first. <laughs> um, actually, no, I, uh, I don't have any reflection to offer. I think that was yeah. well stated. Yeah, that was my problem too. <laughs> no, way to go, Gary. So... You've identified um, one way that your life as it's now lived is offering you a teaching in its own way. And so this, we had scheduled this podcast like a month ago, and I wanted to explore pre the, the way that pre-incarnational choices affect our upcoming incarnation and I've had such a gap in my own knowledge about the processes of reincarnation and how what happens in, in between lives. There's some that can be 
extrapolated from the law of one, but it's very minimal amount of information. So Jim has for years been describing the work of Michael Newton, Brian Weiss, uh, Michael Newton, uh, created a couple of books, uh, Journey of Souls and Destiny of Souls, both of which um, amalgamate hundreds, I think thousands of people that he has regressed to the place between lives. And through these case studies, he was able to make a really composite and coherent picture of how things operate. And so that um, knowing this podcast was coming and having wanted to listen to that book for a long time, anyway, I jumped on it and I came upon some stuff that I think might really shed or might shed a little bit of light into these dynamics. There's one case in particular, and I wrote it down when I heard it. So this, I believe it was a woman was, had been regressed and she was describing a past life. And the situation was that she was on the American plains somewhere in the 19th century and she was married early on and they acquired land and they had kids, but her husband passed away um, pretty soon into marriage and kids and land. And because of that, she was left with her kids, but she was tied to the land. And that be only becomes significant when you know, uh, when you see what it was she was intending by this life. And it turns out that in previous lives, she had been um, something of a wanderer or, or, or a nomad. She hadn't been able to remain very rooted in one place for too long. So as a balancing mechanism, and in order to um, learn how to, I'm very pr crudely putting this, you'd have to listen to her, her uh, case to understand it better, but like stay put, that's not how she said it. But um, she intentionally made soul agreements for a life where she would be limited to one place without mobility, she said in the book. And like, this is her being regressed. So she has this expanded knowledge. But if you were to have asked her in that incarnation, like, what's your experience of being tied to this land as a single mother with these kids, I would imagine there would have been some heartache and pain. But again, the, the, this was a designed situation. And this is another way that I understand like the will to be, or rather what a, occurs in our lives to be a function of our will, because particularly the more we progress on the path, the more that we are designing our upcoming lives. And hearing that and hearing some parallel uh, to your own life i couldn't help but wonder like has do you do you have a sense i don't want to be too i mean this is the setting for it but part of me also feels a little woo-woo when talking about past lives but uh do you have a sense that you've always been this wandering nomad soul yeah i actually had a not a past life regression, but a past life experience through a shamanic journey with a teacher where I was shown something like that. But it was a result of something that wasn't my choice. Um, but from that point forward, I became a wanderer. Mm. Um, 
and so yeah it, it feels very deeply rooted um from from yeah past lives i'm not suggesting like that that offers an answer or any of us can understand what your incarnational programming was but it does help to open the door to the consideration that we do indeed design our lives on one level or another and even what can seem like very hard or you know from the perspective of the world unfortunate circumstances can actually be part of that programming jim or austin do you guys have a sense that um, your life has unfolded uh, according to pre-incarnational design? Is is there any? Yeah, I'll ask that question. I'll leave it there. Well, um, I just have one instance that may or may not have been the case. But before I was ready to come back from Oregon to join Don and Carla, I was with Paul Shockley in Yamhill, Oregon. And Paul Shockley at that time was the channel for cosmic awareness. And I uh, had a reading with him before I returned to Louisville. And part of that reading said that uh, Don and Carla and I had been together in another life to prepare us for this life. And we were <laughs> sort of like the situation you just mentioned out on the plains of the Western United States. And uh, I believe that Carla was my daughter and my wife had passed away and Don was my brother and we were attempting to live on this uh, homestead and so both of us were in the position of uh, taking care of Carla so that in this life that would also be a portion of our lives together and would prepare us to do it. So that's as close as I can come. As, as a follow-up to that, Jim, do you feel that, um, I know you have a lot of faith when you look at your incarnation and you have a sense that things have happened for a reason and flow the way they flow for that reason. But have you, in the lived experience of your incarnation felt resistance to your circumstances at times and wanted something other than what was uh, then present for you? Uh, yeah, but as I was going through each situation, it did not feel like I had made a mistake. It felt like it was a necessary part of my path. When I was graduated from college, I had degrees they had majors in business and economics, if you can believe that, because that was what was expected of me by my family. So I could join the corporation that my father worked for. And I didn't want to do that. So um, because that was part of I was part of the hippie revolution back then. And, you know, that didn't make any sense. I didn't want to be in that world. So I took another year of sociology. So I had a third major. I thought, well, I'll, I'll follow that. And uh, I kind of followed it. Uh, I joined Teacher Corps, uh, which is like Peace Corps to the inner city school kids in the United States and ended up in uh, Gainesville and Jacksonville, Florida in doing that particular work. And I thought that while I was there that the work we were doing with the kids was good, but I didn't feel my heart was really in it. So I needed to do something else. And so I I found a book there related to schools. It was 
how to start your own school and make a book. And in the back of that, I found a bibliography for this fellow out in Colorado, Blackhawk, Colorado, just west of Denver. You may be familiar with it, Shruti. Uh, and right now it's a tourist trap, <laughs> but <Right. laughs> back in those days, uh, it was not a tourist trap. It was very isolated. And he had an adventure trail survival school. He taught brain self-control and how you could be in the primal nature environment and use dreams and essaying and neurodramas to get the energy of the brain to flow into the frontal lobes. And so it worked. And I, and he said, uh, go go buy your own land and start your own schools. That's why I came to Kentucky and moved there. So all of those things, you know, at the time, uh, people were looking at me saying, well, can't you make up your mind? You know, what's the matter with you? But to me, it just felt like everything flowed one step after another. Everything was just perfect. And a final follow-up. And uh, heads up, I'm sensing we're probably like in the final 10, 15% of the podcast. Um, <laughs> Your, I would, I think you would agree, one of your primary missions in life was to be a caretaker for Carla. I have seldom seen somebody so single-minded about any one pursuit in life as <laughs> you were and, and your orientation to care for Carla. And of course, the, the lessons that that would bring. But at times, I'm sure like that was a very long journey. And that involved, as it would for any caretaker, sacrifice and limitation. Were there times when you felt resistant to that and said, I wish this... Um, no, this wasn't my life. No. No, I was uh, very much enjoying being able to take care of Carla. It felt like the very right thing to do. Um, she moved from her room upstairs down here into my room, which was significant in that it embolized the movement into my heart. Uh, I shared everything I had here, which was opening my heart. Uh, Ra had mentioned that she had learned how to give without expectation of return. Now she needed to balance that by learning how to accept the love offerings of others. She had to accept so much from me and others to help her because she couldn't do it for herself. Those lessons, uh, having her balance that in her own life and me beginning to open my heart were just absolutely perfect. And it felt like it at the time. That reminds me of, and thank you for that, Jim. And I'm going to ask Austin the same basic question, but quickly, it reminds me of a few sentences from Ra when they said in 8.1, consider, if you will, the path your life experience has taken. Consider the coincidences and odd circumstances by which one thing flowed to the next. Consider this well. Each entity will receive the opportunity that each needs. Yep. So um, Austin, to you... Do you have any sense of pre-incarnational design and or have you had resistance to the your life configuration and a yearning for something different? It's an interesting question because it's making me realize that even though I don't talk about it a lot, the idea of incarnational design is a pretty central part of my spiritual path in that so far as I can recognize, um, it's almost been completely designed. Um, very similarly to Jim, even before I was on the spiritual path, um, I would recognize my life 
opening up steps in front of me. And I almost never hesitated to just take the step. And um, I'd never felt like I made a wrong decision. I never felt like I was led astray. I mean, obviously sometimes when you take a step without consideration, there's some consequences, but um, I've always felt like my life uh, wasn't necessarily preordained, but that, you know, there was a certain path that I wanted to take before coming here. There are various ways to take that path and I found a pretty clear way to take it. Um, to be like, since it is a big part of my spiritual journey or my spiritual path, um, communing with my higher self is also a really significant part of my own spiritual practice. So I am constantly in tune with these sorts of things of like the sort of meta analysis of my life and where I am and the sort of overview of it. But there's one experience I had that, um, can is in line with the sort of journey of various lifetimes journey over lifetimes that you're talking about that I'll tell real quickly and it was something that happened to me right after I moved here to Kentucky Gary you and I went uh to hike with one of our friends out near um the natural bridge place mm -hmm. we were driving early in the morning there was um fog settled at the bottom of hills and I had a really really strong flashback to being here before I was a soldier in the civil war I was fighting for a confederate militia um, I was just like a normal person I had a very humble life and I had a strong sense of location I was there in that place before with the people I was fighting with and with the people I was fighting against. And I had this overwhelming feeling as the soldier of confusion of why this was happening, what was going on. Um, I was part of a Kentucky militia and I think that there was another Kentucky militia that was fighting for the Union Army. And I knew people that were in that militia and like I was friends with them. And I had was so lost and confused about why we were doing this and what this fight was for. I didn't have any awareness of like the larger political stage or the bigger issues at play um, that caused the civil war. I was just a simple person in Kentucky and I was fighting my friends and killing them. And I, it was really impactful for me. And then after the experience, I also had a sort of message with my higher self. It was an experience that was given to me. I was, it wasn't a random chance that I had this experience of remembering this past lifetime. It was um, basically like, this is a theme that you uh, have experienced in that life. It's a theme you'll experience again in this life um, in various ways that I have experienced in this life. And that uh, confusion, that sense of tension of why these opposing sides are fighting when like, you know them and they're, you're connected to them in the heart. Um, is a primary defining part of my life, especially like right now, um, that's a major source of catalyst for me. And the present moment is the just um, contentiousness in our society that seems to be ever increasing. And um, coming back to Kentucky, part of the message was that that was also a plan of mine to come back to Kentucky, experience that and that 
there's something special about this place and the people here and there's bridges to be built. Wow, so you're the reason Don, Carla, and Jim landed in Louisville. <laughs> <laughs> their incarnations. <laughs> it's so amazing how it all gears together. And um, yeah, I remember you when you had that moment, how moved you were. And I know I can, from outside set of eyes, have seen you work through that issue that you named between um, contentious points of view and how to reconcile them, how to find legitimacy and validity in views that are seem mutually exclusive mm-hmm. and how not to let any of that block your heart as well. So uh, thank you, Austin and Jim. i share a quick few thoughts from my own path. And then um, I'd like to touch on the experience of being wander and the journey of authenticity before we close though. Uh, uh, Shruti, if you have anything else you'd like to explore by all means. So in my own case, I tend to um, not like I, I looking back at my life, I see design, particularly since I was um, since my spiritual path began. In fact, uh, I have gone to a local intuitive several times who's really good and she in my very first session with her, um, this said a bunch of jaw-dropping, accurate things about me that you know she could have couldn't have known otherwise. And she said that like you were born into a family where there was no responsibility placed on you and there was no expectation. And not only was that so true, but I had been as an adult looking back, like upset with my mother that uh, she hadn't given me that training. That like I had to develop it in my adult life but according to this intuitive and you know take it with a grain of salt but it had some resonance she described how in past lives i had been a military leader i had been making life or death decisions and there was so much on my shoulders that i wanted to be born into a life uh, at least during my childhood years where there was little responsibility placed on me and it was actually you know, whether literally true or not kind of healing in that i could see purpose behind what had at what from my early adult perspective had seemed like um, an unfortunate uh, upbringing that I, that I wasn't happy with. And I could see design in it as well. And um, I went, I spoke with another uh, woman who based in California over the phone earlier this year. And she has a capacity to uh, see one's past lives pretty clearly. And she told me that in many of my past lives, I have focused on my connection to source. And I didn't um, focus as much as I had wanted to or should have or in a balanced way for my soul's growth on relationships. So she said, uh, you know, people around me have been confused in past lives because like they don't know who I am to them, that sort of stuff. And she said in this life, I wanted a quote unquote major in relationships. So um, which speaks to me because like if you were to take a look into my brain and could sift through the uh, various anxieties and depressions and resistances in there as well. You you would see a mind that's like constantly turning that compass to like 
how do I seek the creator? How do I liberate myself from the bondage of this human existence? How do I find, you know, enlightenment for whatever the word means? And, uh, and, you know, why can't I live a life where I'm, you know, monastically uh, spending more time in silence and meditation and uh, living a contemplative existence. Instead, I'm, uh, you know, my relation, my life seems to be more relationship centered and uh, more task oriented. So another example of the way in which uh, present life circumstances are not by accident, uh, particularly the, the big ones. Um, and if I can't squeak in one more example from Life Between Lives, and then we'll move on to our final couple parts after checking in with Sreethi. So from that book I was reading that I mentioned, um, I think it was the same case who had had a life on the American Plains. And um, this woman experienced a life in Canada where she had a younger brother who was disfigured from a fire. And this younger brother had become rejected by their local community. So the older sister helped the younger brother to see who the brother was really on the inside underneath his appearances. And that was a, a part of his programming um, uh, along with his programming to help him learn humility. And this you know, tragic incident of the fire, which still deserves, of course, every ounce of compassion and service from everybody around them, but still had uh, seem according to this testimony, some intentionality. And one of the reasons that the this woman took on this older sister role was that because she had had negative contact, as she described it, quote unquote, with the brother in another life. So she was balancing her own karmic load to accept the role of, of caregiver with him. So <laughs> sorry for the earful, Shruti. Um, besides cool. exploring wanderers and the journey of authenticity, which I see so much in your story, um, is there anything that you want to talk about, explore, negate? <laughs> <laughs> no, that was so fun. I, I wouldn't mind actually sharing a little more detail about that previous life experience I had um, before moving on. Okay. Mm -hmm. um, so it wasn't very long and it was a lot more feeling-based than word-based um, and the feeling it was, you know, really deep sorrow of, of what had transpired, but um, it was, I don't know what, how many lives ago it was, but I um, had, I was married in a village in India, living with my in-laws, who was just, I only saw my mother-in-law in this <clears throat> journey. And so I had, a, I had a young son already, and then I gave birth to a daughter and my mother-in-law took my daughter to, um, you know, to kill her because they didn't want a daughter, which is a practice that used to happen. Um, and I fought against it. And what the vision was that of my mother-in-law, my husband, and my young son all on one side and me saying, no, 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 I want to keep my daughter. And they took her away from me. And I just walked. I just left at that moment. I said, I cannot be part of this family anymore, even though it meant leaving my son. And I joined 
I, I, I believe I shaved my head at this point. I, I joined a, a field of women, um, not field, a group of monastic women living on the edge of town. And um, that's how my life forward got a bit informed was that, um, so meaning, how do I say this? I think that does kind of explain a lot of the tensions of um, the whole thing with children in this lifetime and sorrow of not having my own and then coming into this and not sure how to handle it. Um, you know, having wandered with a group of women for much of my past life, at least that one. Um, so that reflection of, of what you all just shared and bringing that reflection to my life is kind of, well, I feel kind of sad about all of it, but also this gives me some clarity in terms of my pre-incarnational choices. And this could have been oversharing, so you can cut this out for the podcast, but I just thought it might be helpful to say this out loud for me. Uh, no, Shruti, that was perfectly relevant to the dynamics we're kind of roughly exploring in terms of seeing, understanding the way our lives unfold as a, a function of um, a very large journey. And it seems that the architecture of reality as we experience it and what Confederation sources call the third density is that we have a veil, a veil of forgetting between our conscious and subconscious minds so that when we're born into this incarnation, we forget um, everything that came before. And it seems as if, you know, we start with a clean slate, but it is emphatically not true. What the, where we are in this incarnation is at a point in, the, in a stream or a river that has a long, long history and is the accumulation of a totality of countless choices that came before. And Ra describes that the upward evolving universe is constantly applying the mechanisms of balance. And that's true for our own incarnations as well as like um, all four of us have explored, there's, um, the, the catalyst that we experience is helping us to achieve greater and greater balances. And I'll segue that into wanderers because one of the key balances that wanderers are seeking to, to achieve or, or refine rather in these third density incarnations is between love and wisdom. And the uh, lamentation, if I can use that word that you describe in your life is and whatever one's circumstances, whether they live in a palace or in squalor, um, is very common among wanderers. And I'm not saying that wanderer syndrome like uh, explains your feelings, but it could offer some insight. Um, are you uh, aware of wanderers according to the law of one? And do you have any resonance with the concept? Oh, yes. I mean, that's what brought me to your work originally was mm. I read that piece on your website and I, I cried. I was like, that's, yeah. <laughs> wow. So, yes. We um, receive communication from people who uh, identify 
as wanderers from around the world and you know many who who don't know or the question isn't important and let me disclaim that really it's not there is no wrong answer to the wanderer question and it does not in any way elevate one or make them special in any sense it's a very humble mission but there is a subset of um, beings in this world who even without exposure to sources like the law of one or any external source have memories and awareness of their soul's origin having come from a source outside of planet earth and the mission or the, the wanderer is here it's a thing because from the higher densities there is an awareness of the pervasive sorrow and widespread confusion on planet earth so the compassion of the entity in the higher density uh, calls them to come to earth in order to be uh, take on uh, to become a human in order to uh, act as a beacon of love and light not as a perfect divine being but uh, just as one who can hopefully if they remember their mission open their heart and humbly serve others through loving acceptance through offering wisdom through whatever their specific talents may be but um once here and once having forgotten everything there is often an existential level of pain and anxiety at existence here because somewhere deep in their memory a substratum in their subconscious they have memory of the of the real universe of an existence where they were connected with everybody on their planet everybody was shared a collective uh, mind and shared love and the harmony was the way of things and to juxtapose that existence to this world where it's we're lucky if we have a few close friends and family and it's a world of competition of survive or you know do what you can to survive or fall off the edge or uh, slip through the cracks and you know the dysfunctions of this world can be cataloged uh, in any number of ways, but they include a war and anger and hatred and separation and control. So that, man, I'm rambling, I'm so sorry. That contrast between those two uh, precipitates some pain and there's something of a wanderer syndrome of people feeling uh, alienation or, or other forms of, of difficulty and then yearning for an existence that I think what you're yearning for, Shruti, approximates this closeness with nature, this freedom from the bonds and limitations of the, the human experience and, um, and the economic realities and hardships of this world. Do you ha have, um, you said you resonated with that concept and um, you even had tears upon, uh, upon arriving at it. Do you feel that like the wanderer dynamic plays a role in in your present circumstance? Yeah, I think in, in such a big way, especially when I became more aware of, of that concept. Um, 
yeah, I, I think it's one of those things that gives me this this comfort knowing that there's this whole group of us here who are wanderers and have this desire for that deeper connection with all that isn't present on a day-to-day basis. And then also that knowledge of this, of being a wanderer also is this source of, well, I just want to be in that perfect space as much as possible mm-hmm. and not have the duality. Um, and so that's how I guess that, yeah, I guess you're saying it's a, between love and wisdom. There's, there is that definite tension there. I'd say overall, it's been a beautiful thing. And I actually did tell my partner once uh, only, well, I guess now I'll be more public, but he's the person I told. And um, he's like, oh yeah, I already knew that. <laughs> he was so nonplussed <laughs> by it all. <laughs> so, okay. Um, but for me, I was like, I thought it was really big news. Um, and so I think also I'd say people in my inner circle for them, it's, they already also know this. And that's why they probably gave me some light of a wide berth um, in my activities with nature, especially often. Yeah, not every wanderer manifests their wanderer identity the way that you very literally do in terms of feeling that, you know, you ideally, you would love nothing more than to be a nomad, uh, Mm -hmm. moving freely about the earth and communing with nature. Mm -hmm. Uh, And for those, just to conclude the the wanderer blues, it can feel something like a a prison to be here. I know that among the recurring dreams, I don't think I've had one for a long time, actually, but among my recurring dreams was one where I I was suddenly in prison. Like, I don't know, there was no sense of being charged with anything. I was just, the overriding feeling state was of losing freedom uh, and having it stripped away and being stuck in this cell with a sense that there is an end eventually, but it's far in the future and I don't know when it is and I just want to get out so badly. And, and um, this place can feel like that to, to, to some. It can also you know, be a place to cherish and um, place of beauty. But uh, I would like to close with some focus on the journey of authenticity. But before I do, Austin and Jim, did you have any thoughts to offer the Wanderer Blues? Not for me. Not really. I have never felt them, fortunately. Um, I don't think a lot about being a wanderer. Um, I just think about being a seeker of truth hmm. and doing whatever I can to uh, discover the love in every moment. Sruthi, and your, as you um, shared with us some of the highlights of your own journey, I could see very visibly a strong thread of the journey of authenticity. So I would like to ask um, the three guys here, self-included, if any of us have anything to share about that journey in our own lives, and then um, turn the mic over to you, Shruti, to see if you would like to um, dive into your own journey in from that light. So Jim, do you have anything? Uh, when, when you consider your life as uh, a progressive journey towards deepening authenticity, does that turn up anything for you? Well, I guess 
you know, the phrase deepening authenticity would have a meaning for me in my continuing attempt to do what I call the Father's will or the Creator's will. I don't think there's any way I could not do that because everything I do or anybody does is helping the Creator to know itself. And that's really apparently the reason we all exist. But I think that there are experiences that can be had that are a more clear representation of what that will might be. And I am ever seeking that will, however I may perceive it. So that would be my journey of authenticity. I, I really want to do the Father's will. That's mm. it. <laughs> Thank you. How about you, Austin? It's a difficult question. <laughs> um, you and I have talked a lot on this podcast about our hesitation to share our lives with the outside world, outside mm -hmm. of LL research. So when you talk about deepening authenticity, that's like the primary thing that comes up for me, even though, especially considering what Jim just shared, it seems a bit like a shallow interpretation, but it really is the biggest aspect of my life is that um, my spiritual life, you know, we're blessed to have it also be part of our occupation, but I still can't say that openly to, you know, strangers or even friends I've known for a long time who are asking me what I do for a living. It's, um, it's hard for me to actually say what I do for a living. I always try to talk around it. I always try to avoid it. And on a deeper level, there's also just the central aspect of love in what we do and a deeper desire to be able to communicate that in greater contexts and in more contexts and uh, finding a way to express that amongst the noise of our society that um, I feel is on my path of deeper authenticity. Yes, <laughs> I, as you stated, we've had a lot of conversations and you know my resonance with that well. And I think that's a, a key part of authenticity. And I had always admired Carla and Jim in that regard because they were at ease being who they were, whatever the company. Whereas um, you and I can kind of recoil a bit if we <laughs> have to be fully honest about the contents of our heart and um, how that manifests in our in our life but in my own path oh my god yes um, I I think from the moment of my spiritual awakening I at 18 years old um, I began to become aware of my own lights and new priorities and new world views. And though I didn't fully understand it at the time, that began to pull me away from an old universe of family and friends and their values. And I became somewhat or rather isolated. 
despite all those social contacts being just a phone call away. And since then, I have been operating not by that old programming, but by what it is that calls me to know who it is I really am. And it's, it's interesting in talking about people from that world, because when I revisit home, I get something of a, of a yardstick sometimes, a reflection, because you know those people hold on to an image of the old me and haven't fully understood <laughs> the, the path that I've taken. But I feel that there's a lot more that could be mined out, but we are approaching a long podcast and I think I just want to close my own thoughts by saying that um, in, in that path, of seeking to know the self and being authentically who the self is. I think there's a lot of old uh, programming in the self and some of that's from expectations that others place on us, like was particularly heavy in Shruti's experience um, in terms of what her parents thought she should be. Uh, and Jim had that too. I didn't really have the parental expectations in my own life, but I do have um, the anger of my father in me and I have the defensiveness of my mother in me. And I see authenticity as learning to see that those threads while a part of me aren't representative of my fullest and truest self. So through loving and forgiving these old threads in me, I can discover uh, who I am and more fully embody and be who I am uh, fearlessly. And I'll close my thoughts with a quote. Ra says about the adept in 80.10, it is also to be noted that an adept is one which has freed itself more and more from the constraints of the thoughts, opinions, and bonds of other selves. Um, whether this is done in, for service to others or service to self, it is a necessary part of the awakening of the adept. And they explain how the um, that sort of freedom can be misconstrued by others and taken as negative when uh, we become liberated from the constraints of society. But uh, Shruti, in hearing your story, I hear how you, you even described a moment where I think you said you, like, you came out to your family and told them, like, I have this spiritual vision of, of reality that doesn't fully conform with uh, what I was raised with. And it sounds like you've had um, multiple steps along the way of discovering, okay, this is who I am, this is what I want, and how can I be honest with those around me and fully inhabit that authenticity? Would you um, care to dive into that? Yeah, I'll just, yeah, I'll just end, I guess, with a couple of things, um, knowing we're at the edge of our podcast, but yes, that um, I'd say everything you've all said just really resonates. Um, and I've been more content being truth in my life, like going out to the woods and quietly knowing, you know, who I am and how I am, 
how I express myself in this world. But when it comes to expressing that to my family, to my circle, as you all have shared, it's it's been so much harder. And I'd say that is my journey of authenticity is to begin speaking truth. And I did that recently with my brother and his husband. So my brother is also living outside the norm and he had no idea of the depth of my spirituality. And it was sort of a, it happened just a month ago and um, it was a really amazing experience because he first listened very deeply as did his husband. And then at the end, he gave me this big giant hug and he scratched my back <laughs> and he said, thanks for being so weird. <laughs> 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 and then the next day he said, Shruti, how do I support you when I don't believe in what you do? So he'd also then processed it and come up with that question. So that, that's been a bit of fodder as well as this podcast of, okay, it's clear that my path now is to begin speaking truth. And I just have to, as Austin said at one point, just um, just walk those steps. Like if something's opening, just walk through it. Um, I'll end there. I love that moment with your brother. That's yeah. <laughs> fantastic. Ra describes that the they say the best way of service to others is the constant attempt to seek to share the love of the creator as it is known to the inner self. This involves self-knowledge and the ability to open the self to the other self without hesitation. This involves radiating that which is the essence or the heart of the mind-body-spirit complex. And that's really interesting. You link authenticity to speaking your truth because... Um, that's that is a, a key component <clears throat> in the law of one so before we go uh, would you like to share with the listeners um your work maybe your website yes i can share that um my website is just my name so it's shruthibajaj.com s-h-r-u-t-h-i-b-a-j-a-j and I did have a little spiel. I'm just going to read. Um, so one of my gifts is healing with light. And this is often why people as well as nature beings reach out to me. Another gift is guiding people to discover or rediscover their medicine and bring it in as an offering in this realm. These gifts manifest through shamanic sessions, personalized rituals and ceremony, healing with food and group retreats on sacred land. I feel my heart flutter a bit hearing those words. Thank you for sharing, Sruti. And I have one final idea before we go, and you're totally welcome to say no. You could say, no, that was that's personal to me, and I'd prefer nobody else read it out loud. Um, but I was really taken by a blog post on your website that you titled The Truth of Trees, and it was concerned your experience in Humboldt Redwoods State Park. I was wondering if it'd be okay to read an excerpt from that of five paragraphs. Would that be all right? Yes, for sure. Awesome. And then we'll close out um, and we'll do our outro. So on Shruti's website is a, a blog post that she wrote called The Truth of Trees. And she says, and this is, isn't the full thing, it's excerpted from it. <clears throat> 
When I unexpectedly drove through my first grove of redwoods, I experienced a feeling being instantly transported into the realm of the known. I simultaneously couldn't make sense of where I was and how I got here, but I knew that I had been here before. The sense of euphoric timelessness was accentuated by the magnificence of this setting. I took a few days to be with different groves along the Northern California coast. I had come with ideas of ceremonies of communion, but when I was there, all, desired, all I desired was just to be in the presence of my very ancient friends, to visit, to lean against their trunks, to lie on any fallen giants, to live in nature time with no agenda where time stretches and bends, to listen to the quiet wisdom that was palpable in every corner of the forest. The redwoods have this special knowing from standing in truth for their entire existence of thousands of years. To be with this community was to be in a vast field of unconditional love as the ancient groves embraced and accepted me into their mist. Stay as long as you can, they said, and take us with you when you leave. When you come back, whether in person or in journey, we will remember you and welcome you back. We are your tribe and you are ours. And Shruti concluded that their teaching was, in the forest, I remembered the teachings of Sat Chit Anand or truth consciousness bliss. The sentient beings were the representation of truth through the portal of my consciousness. The end prize was supreme bliss. I could choose to get bogged down in the illusions of life or I could lighten the load and live in the higher consciousness of the primal sphere. I could value my incarnation in this lifetime and be a beacon of bliss. The ripples of truth and bliss within me would surely flow into the world in which I was an integral member. I thought not only was that beautiful, but it offered some insight into your heart and spoke to your question. So thank you for writing that. Thank you for being on this podcast with us. Uh, Jim, would you like to, do you have anything to say to the listeners? I have a little bit. Um, if you have confusion in your life as to what your journey of seeking should be, realize that confusion has a valid place on your journey. To take the next step on your journey, open your heart in love for yourself and move forward in love for all you have in your life. And please know that we love and support you completely. Be well and love each other as the one creator that we all are. You have been listening to LL Research's The Law of One podcast. We hope you've enjoyed the program. You can find more from LL Research at llresearch.org and bringforth.org. Thank you so much for listening supporting LL Research. And a special thank you to Shruti Pashaj, not only for her excellent question, but for being willing to step into the unknown with us and joining this podcast. If you have a question or a topic you'd like for us to discuss, please read the instructions at llresearch.org slash podcast. We love you all and we'll talk with you next time. End of podcast. Beep.